Blessed are you, holy and living one. You come to your people and set them free. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. Sometimes something that someone says really sticks with you. About three decades ago, our friend Bob said, I have a punchline for you. And one nun says to the other nun, now that's a nasty habit. Even with help to set up, it's a memorable punchline, and it might even elicit a giggle, like it did with some of you. But it's not a real joke. It's lacking any context. For a joke to work, for a story to land and have meaning, the setup is important. Both our passages from the Gospel of Luke and from Paul's letter to the churches in Rome read a bit like that punchline wandering around in search of a good setup. I don't know about you, but I had trouble following the text. The opening words from the passage to the letter to the church in Rome are, but now, giving us a clear signal that we are tuning into a show already in progress. And with Luke, the reading also begins abruptly, woe to you, woe to who? They are memorable, just as they are, and our minds do connect with the words and might even conjure up a familiar image or two. Jesus both at dinner with and at odds with the Pharisees and the lawyers. Paul's reminder that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But reading those pericopes divorced from their contexts leaves us wanting, or at least it should. Because without the context, the punchline becomes a catchphrase devoid of any real meaning. And Jesus becomes a one-dimensional caricature, a pithy prophet who shames those people. Without context, the punchline becomes bad bumper sticker theology, and Jesus becomes our team's mascot. When read in context, what Luke has Jesus proclaim and what Paul explains is that hypocrisy is perhaps the besetting sin for those of us who steep our identity in claims of correct piety. Being better theologically trained, attaining social wokeness, and even establishing a pattern of best praxis not only doesn't offer a guarantee against the sin of hypocrisy, rather it makes us more susceptible to it. And in God there are no teams. Jesus is no one's mascot. If we are in Christ, we are all one in Christ. And routinely, that can be a hard pill to swallow. 
As Paul reminds us, a sin is a sin is a sin. It is something we all do, no matter how orthodox or unorthodox we are, religiously speaking. And learning to acknowledge our propensity for sin, both as human beings and as religious people, is a very important step in accepting the free gift of God's mercy and grace that all are offered. For several decades in the Episcopal Church, sin became a distasteful word, probably on par with evangelism. Why? Possibly because demographically writ large, Episcopalians tended to fall within certain economic and educational and social strata, and we saw ourselves as blessed and relatively happy. Sure, we made mistakes, but we got it right more often than not. We were, largely speaking, people with agency and power, and therefore, we saw ourselves as basically good. And even though we hadn't been the established church for almost 250 years, we often behaved, behave, like we are, exchanging grace for noblesse oblige. But pendulums swing and tides turn, and now here we are facing all kinds of evidence wildly to the contrary. Our churches, our families and communities are divided over politics and theology, divided over multiple pandemics, divided because of our propensity for sin. If you ever wanted job security, now is a great time to be serving in the church. We want to do what is right, we want to be righteous, we want to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly, and that's all good. And yet, we are human. We sin. If we can be honest with ourselves about our human condition and about our religious hypocrisy, then we will realize that on our own, we have no standing with God and nothing to say before God, no matter how good, how woke, and how generous we can be in a given moment. And when we realize this fact, then we can make the psalmists cry our own. I cry out to you from the depths, Lord. My Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears pay close attention to my request for mercy. If you kept track of sins, Lord, my Lord, who would stand a chance? But forgiveness is with you. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. My siblings, my family in Christ, the free gift of forgiveness comes not because of who we are or because of who we are not, but because of who God is, because of God's very godness.
And that, my friends, is the exceedingly good news that we have to proclaim, that we have to proclaim. We are not really righteous, but God is. We are not fully faithful, but God is. We do not always and only walk in the light, but God does. This is what our scriptures testify, and this is to what Jesus bears witness. Forgiveness is with God. Healing and wholeness, in a word, salvation, is what is on offer in that covenant of forgiveness with God. This free gift is what God offers and what God wants us to receive and then share with others. We have been created in such a way that God light, that Christ light can shine through us. So can we agree that context is important? Can we agree? Yeah. And can we accept that the context in which we as humans live and move and have our being is one in which God is righteous and impartial and on our own we are not? Can we accept that? And can we, even as religious people, further accept that in this context, God, who is loving and merciful, despite handing down a righteous and impartial verdict of guilty, in sentencing us, bewilderingly sets us free. Can we accept that? It's hard. It's hard. But when we do, are we grateful or what? And if grateful, do we hide that gratitude? Do we hoard that gift like private treasure? Do we take the key of knowledge like the lawyers and either fail to enter ourselves and then worse, close out those who are trying to enter? Or do we proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus? Context matters, right? Okay, now, would you like to hear a whole joke? Not just a punchline, a whole joke. Okay. Our Lord Jesus, the Christ, upon ascending to God in heaven, encounters the angels who accompany him to the pearly gates. The angels are very excited, and hence rather chatty, and they begin to pepper Jesus with questions. How are you, Jesus? Jesus, how did it go? What happens next, Jesus? And so Jesus began to regale them with tales of his life on earth, walking among the humans, whom the angels know all too well. And he explains, So I called twelve disciples and sent them out two by two, brought them back, taught them, and others began to follow and to receive our ministry of deliverance and healing and feeding and preaching and teaching. And now they are gathering a larger community, and those 12 will each call several more to join in, and then those will each call several more to join in, and on and on until everyone has heard the good news of God's love and mercy and compassion. 
And one of the angels replied, what's plan B? Like the angels, God knows we are not perfect, and yet we are still plan A. God calls us to covenantal faithfulness, to be in relationship with the one who is perfect, and despite our sin and failures, we are still plan A. God allows us to claim and boast of the goodness and mercy of God, and then calls us to proclaim that goodness and mercy to those who are near and those who are far off. We are still plan A. My dear siblings in Christ, you are plan A because God's godness is your context. Let that stick with you. It's no joke. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.